Hi, this is Jessica Barker, author of Confident Cybersecurity, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Jessica Barker. Jessica is an advocate for workplace cybersecurity and has been named one of the top 20 most influential women in cybersecurity in the UK and in 2017 was awarded one of the UK Tech Women 50. She's co-founder and co-CEO of Sygenta. She's a popular keynote speaker internationally, as well as a frequent contributor to print and broadcast media. Jessica lives in Gloucestershire, UK, and is here to talk about her book, Confident Cybersecurity, How to Get Started in Cybersecurity and Future-Proof your career. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, Jess, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? So I would have to say my family, my parents, who were both social workers, really influenced me to understand that people can have challenging lives, that understanding everybody can have struggles that we don't necessarily see is really important, and the importance of compassion. And then my brother influenced me with his interest in technology. He actually introduced me to the internet and he got me a bit more interested in technology than I might have been without that. Do you remember when he introduced you to technology? Was it showing you the website? Was it helping you with a hobby of yours or something? Yeah, I remember very specifically. He managed to convince my parents to get the internet before before we had it in school, before I think pretty much anyone in my hometown had the internet. We, me and my parents, had no idea what it was. And it really irritated me because I would come home from school and like many teenage girls, 13, 14, I would pick up the phone and want to call my best friend because I hadn't seen her for 10 minutes. And what I was greeted with, I was greeted with the noise of the modem and my brother shouting at me to put the phone down and me shouting at him because he was taking up the phone line again. And so one day he said, let me show you what this is actually about. This is the internet where you can find out anything about anything. What do you want to find out about, Jess? And I was overwhelmed with this idea of a world of knowledge inside a computer. So I didn't know what to pick. And so I said, let's look at let's look at monkeys. So we spent some time looking at different kinds of monkeys. <laughs> and that was my introduction to the internet. That's wonderful. And I, I love the story about interrupting the acoustic coupler. He actually had the phone in another part of your home plugged yeah. in so that when you picked up, you heard all of these screeches. The screech <laughs> that I can't mimic right now, but that is so familiar to anyone who lived through that time. Sure. And I bet you the people who can mimic it are on the other side of cybersecurity. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's right. I knew people who could whistle on a phone. They could. They had a little box that made whistles. And it just sounded like whistles, but it actually were tones. And they could dial remotely on a payphone with this. And I just thought that was fascinating. Freaking yeah. with a, a PH. Yeah, that's right. 
So fast forward ahead and with this interest and this curiosity that your brother, what was his name? His name's Dan. Dan. So what Dan showed you in terms of the internet really opened your eyes. And did you ever, can you recall an experience where you were able to introduce someone else to the internet or some aspect of the internet, maybe cybersecurity, that you, you had the experience of introducing them and seeing them have that sense of wonder and amazement, amazing amazement that this existed online, maybe Maybe it was early in your career, maybe it was recently. Do you remember an experience like that? Great question, because it's actually those experiences that really drive me in cybersecurity. So for me, it's not about, it's not the same. He introduced me, opened my eyes to the internet and what it was capable of to some degree. He tried to help me see that. What I do is help people see that they actually can engage with security online. So a core part of my job is helping people feel empowered, helping people feel confident with cybersecurity. And so I see that so often where people maybe are feeling that problems in cybersecurity are inevitable, that they that they can never manage their passwords, that they feel scared. They know there's these threats out there, but they don't know what they can do as individuals, often individuals who don't see themselves as technical. And people like that can feel really, really put off from technology and can feel intimidated by cybersecurity. So it's it's a great part of my job when I can get people to see actually this isn't something to be terrified by and there are simple steps that we can all take to actually engage with cybersecurity in a more positive way. I think that's really interesting and for everyone listening to understand that in order to protect yourself and your company and its digital assets, you've got to become personally vulnerable first so that you could admit what you don't know and then put that energy in into defensiveness, into your electronic program and policies and digital assets. That is, I think that's really actually very true, Bill. What you've touched upon is the fact that we can all, or many people can feel very vulnerable using technology. And sometimes we don't want to admit that. Or often people feel like they have questions around technology. They have questions around cybersecurity. But for whatever reason, they may feel like they don't want to ask that question, that it would show them as not being knowledgeable, that it might be a stupid question. And so people don't even want to go to that point of asking it. And of course, that's a huge barrier to not only to learning, but also to being able to protect themselves. So part of my job when I do awareness raising, when I'm communicating about cybersecurity, my first focus is on creating a space and a feeling of psychological safety of the fact that actually nobody's stupid. People should ask whatever questions they have. And we're all here to learn and to be more empowered with this. And let me it, jump in. You could say, no, there are no stupid questions, yet we are ignorant in areas. And it's important to acknowledge that. Sure. There are, when it comes to cybersecurity, there are no stupid questions, but there can be a lack of understanding. There can be even a level of ignorance. And it's important that we acknowledge that and that we help people feel comfortable with asking questions, that we equip people with knowledge, understanding, and tools in this area. 
Do you have an example of someone who went through this and didn't believe or, or had a, a suspicion that they were vulnerable, but needed your help in order to really secure their assets? Can we talk about one example like that? What was his or her responsibility? So an example that springs to mind, I delivered an awareness raising session about 18 months ago, and it was to a large organization in Canada. And one thing I spoke about was these emails that do the rounds and they come in saying, you've clicked on something you should have your computer has been infected with malware. It's because you were looking at pornography and we now have access to all of your systems and you need to pay us money or we're going to leak information and pictures of a sensitive nature about you online. This actually happened to the company? No. So this was a, this was basically an email that I was just talking about. They were very prevalent at the time. And it started by saying, um, I know your password and this is your password. And it included a password that the individual had used. And it says in the email, I know this because I have hacked your computer. I was able to do that because you are watching pornography and the pornography was laced with malware. And so I have access to everything. I've been able to see you through your webcam. I have all of these photos of you and they're embarrassing and I'm going to put them on the internet unless you pay me money. And these emails are prevalent, but they were really doing the rounds about 18 months ago. And in my awareness session, I spoke about this as a problem and I explained that the password hasn't been taken because somebody's clicked on any malware or has been looking at something on the internet they shouldn't have. The password comes from a password breach and the rest is just a lie. It is just cyber criminals who've got hold of people's email addresses, people's passwords, and have concocted this story around it to try and steal money and extort money out of people. And so I explained that and the fact that actually don't send money. It's not true. Don't be worried. There's no photos of you. Just delete the email. And at the end of the session, a a guy called Stephen who worked in marketing came up to me and he waited until I'd finished chatting with a few people. So he waited until I was on my own and he had tears in his eyes. It was really emotional as he explained that he'd had one of these emails the week before and he'd spent a week having sleepless nights. His wife was really worried. His wife was upset with him because she thought the email was true and it caused this huge disruption to his life. He couldn't focus at work. He was worried about the impact it could have on his career. He didn't know whether to send the money or not. And because I was able to explain the scam and he could see that it was all a scam, he felt incredibly reassured. But he hadn't felt he could talk to anyone about this. He had felt like he'd made this mistake. He felt ashamed and embarrassed. All of these emotions that actually the criminals were trying to capitalize on to extort money from him and many other people. See, it's such a big issue that it's not just technical, but this relies on shame, insecurity, and isolating people so that they don't ask questions. So I think a key aspect of this is to always find someone who you can trust, who has established credentials, who is not looking to gain access to your systems, but can educate business leaders on how to view cybersecurity issues, how to steps to protect themselves, and maybe even provide checklists that people could follow in order to increase the security of their assets and their company. So true. I think having trusted advice and having somebody you can turn to is incredibly important. And a lot of people don't have that or they overlook that until they really need it. So 
having an idea of who you can turn to with these questions, with these issues in advance of when you might need them in advance, for example, of when you may have an incident. I think that's absolutely crucial. And raising awareness of this human side, of the fact that these scams do capitalize on our emotions, that that is a core element of what criminals are looking to do. When people understand that, it takes the sting out of them. It takes the power out of them. So I think it's really important if you're thinking about raising awareness, for example, among your workforce, among your colleagues, to understand that emotional element and help other people to understand that as well. So just another issue is that we're in the midst of a COVID lockdown and the pandemic lockdown is making all of us work from home and access our everything from our emails to our online systems to knowledge sharing systems and databases all online. And we're not able to just walk down the hall if we got an unusual message. I remember reading in your book that somebody said in a large organization, a VP level person was contacted and said, we'd like you to, and it seemed to come from an, an email. It said, I'm going to send you some information on WhatsApp. And the WhatsApp said, the message said, we need you to transfer 300,000 pounds. And it seemed unusual, but the fellow was familiar with the the woman who was asking for this information to be, for this fund transfer to be made. And it seemed unusual. So he was going to check. And the WhatsApp message says, if you need to check, you'll be contacted by another person. And it was a, a cleverly engineered plan to have this executive transfer money in an unusual way that he had not been familiar with before. But it seemed the person seemed to know him. It seemed to know who the other people he should be checking with. They just took him outside the existing systems. And why don't you explain the important detail that thwarted this from this transaction from occurring that only happened by accident. Do you recall the incident I'm talking about? Sure, I do. And what was crucial in this was actually a conversation then between that individual and another colleague, I think it was their boss, who happened to turn up at their desk at just the right time and, and was able to find out about this WhatsApp conversation and then could look at it and because it was a more senior person who had supposedly sent this WhatsApp, the boss actually knew their their phone number and had it and could check and say, no, that isn't their WhatsApp. That's not them. Yes, it's the right photograph, the photograph that they also have online, but you're not speaking to the right person over WhatsApp. And then they could go away and check that, double check it and find out that it was all a very cleverly constructed scam that involved a lot of information that you would have thought only people internal to the organization could know. So it was a, a really targeted scam, but it highlights the fact, as you say, all sorts of different communication mechanisms are being used now. So if we backtrack a few years, there was much more focus on phishing over email. What we see now is still, of course, phishing over email, but also a great deal being conducted through WhatsApp, through SMS, text messages, through social media, over the telephone, because cyber criminals have realized that actually people are getting more savvy to email phishing. We're raising awareness of email phishing phishing. So they have evolved as they do to incorporate a variety of channels and sometimes as in that case, mixing channels. So using email and WhatsApp, sometimes also using phone calls to try to be more convincing. And it is a risk 
that every company faces that has important digital assets. You don't have to be like a few examples that you highlighted in the book. There was a job seeking company and over 250,000 US and UK job seekers, their data, their personal data was publicly exposed. GoDaddy, one of the largest domain registrars in the world, failed to secure its Amazon cloud configuration information and over 24,000 site details were exposed. And that gave hackers information that they could use to exploit all sorts of vulnerabilities throughout their customer base. And even the World Wide Wrestling Federation lost 3 million data for personal data for 3 million fans when it botched its S3 settings. It happens to those who are charged with this and it happens in unusual ways. And even people who think we don't have credit card information, so we're not being targeted. Every single site is targeted. Even tiny sites compared to the World Wide Wrestling Federation or GoDaddy, small business leaders if you have a website, it's being targeted. Just talk to whoever looks at the logs, who are people who are trying to penetrate it and send information and guess passwords. It's happening in an automated way, and it's happening in direct and coordinated ways to a far greater extent than most people realize. What's been your take on this, Jessica, in terms of what people need to look out for from so many different angles? It's such an important point that you've raised because many people will say to me, why would I be targeted? I work with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses who at one point felt, why would we be targeted? Why would anybody want our data? Surely the cyber criminals are going after the really big companies, the big banks. And the truth is that all of us can be targeted, actually at an individual kind of family, personal level, but also at a business level as well whatever the size of organization. But beyond that, a lot of, of cybercrime is not targeted. You don't have to be a target to actually be a victim of cybercrime. So if we compare... Could you say more about that, please? So give me an example that really drills down and illustrates that. One thing that it's important for people to understand is that cybercrime and sort of cyber weapons can create a lot of collateral damage. So a really famous example would be Maersk in 2017. So the shipping giant responsible for about one fifth of world, the world's shipping, and they were caught up allegedly in cyber war, an act of cyber warfare from Russia attacking the Ukraine. And I cover this in a couple of different points in Confident Cybersecurity. But essentially, what it shows is that because Maersk were using some software that allegedly Russia hacked and interfered with, because Maersk were using it, they also suffered the consequences of this attack. And it that case also highlights that this isn't about data being stolen. It isn't just about that. It can also be about functioning as a business. What happened to Maersk was their computers, their phones, their network was shut down to such an extent that they couldn't operate, they couldn't communicate with each other. And it's one of the biggest cases of cyber crime and sort of an impact of cyber crime that we've ever seen. It cost, allegedly cost Maersk about $300 million in losses and they weren't even the target. See, that's just, it reminds me of one of the recent hacks that occurred with SolarWinds, where 
I think it was, and, and there's no way I can know this for sure, but I think it was Russian hackers had infiltrated SolarWinds software and gained access to government computers. That was their objective. But there were like 20,000 customers, many of whom, most of whom probably weren't government customers. And they also were laid vulnerable, even though they weren't targeted. Is that also an example of the point you're making? Absolutely. It has a lot of parallels with what happened to MERS. And it shows again that the case that you have raised in terms of solar winds shows the vulnerability we can sometimes experience with a supply chain. We all work with other organizations and we use software and systems that other organizations build. And sometimes we are a supplier to organizations. And so one thing that we see cyber criminals increasingly taking advantage of is that supply chain relationship. So as a small business, we may not be targeted because we are the ultimate target, but we may be targeted as a way to get to another organization. So it may be an organization we are a supplier of, it may be an organization we're a partner with, but sometimes smaller or less obvious targets can be compromised as a means of getting to an organization that they are connected. I think that point is so important. I just want to highlight that. Sometimes hackers are looking to piece together a puzzle in order to get to an ultimate destination, unsuspectingly, assets that you have, or even they could take over your computers to add to their computational power on off hours, could be hijacked in that way. And you never can be completely sure. So that's why it's so important to be super aware and vigilant that you're reviewing this information on a regular basis. Here's another example from a confident cybersecurity that really surprised me and impressed upon me the need to not only be aware of these important aspects yourself, but also family members. You write about Shelley Sawyers, who innocuously was posting information about her husband, Sir John Sawyers, and posting pictures, posting about places that they went. And it wasn't necessarily identifying John, but it was saying to the people who she was connected with were congratulating her on his big job. He was just made chief of, and now people on Facebook had access to this information and hackers could piece together important steps. Can you lend some perspective to that, Jessica? So to give us an idea of why that's important to hackers to have access to identifiable information, maybe vacation trips that they've taken. It's not the obvious thing of, oh, we're going to be away for vacation in two weeks that leaves our home vulnerable. But why is it that hackers were interested in personally identified information about someone who had a very important job of national security? Sure. It's a really interesting example because it does show the extent to which we can share information that seems innocuous about ourselves. Back that up. Actually... It's not innocuous. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I may avoid that altogether because I'll probably say it wrong. We want to inoculate ourselves with a vaccine <laughs> against these viruses. Clearly got it on the mind. Oh dear. So that's a great example because it shows that we can share information about ourselves that seems harmless online. And we can think that it would have no impact, that we don't mind if people know this about us. We can share holiday pictures, whatever it may be. And that's fine. What we don't necessarily understand is there are people out there with nefarious purposes who might use use information that we think is harmless to compromise us in one way or another. So the example you mentioned was a woman sharing holiday pictures of her husband and mentioning the fact that he had got a fantastic new job. And then friends 
had not thought about the fact that they should be cautious with what they wrote in the comments. So friends of this family then making comments, congratulations to John on his big job and letting it slip. That job actually was very high level national security job that you wouldn't necessarily want the details of posting all over social media. And so it actually led to a bit of a change in intelligence circles in the UK, where suddenly those kind of jobs at the head of the intelligence service had been kept more discreet. And once the cat was out of the bag, actually, the intelligence services decided apparently to be more open with that information. But it shows that we cannot control sometimes what people say about us. One thing we have worked on at Sygenta is helping people understand their digital footprints. So we do what's called open source intelligence analysis of individuals and companies to help people understand actually the information they're sharing about themselves and what it might give away that they wouldn't intend. And one thing we find in every assessment is that it's not the targets themselves who will give away that information. It's usually the people connected to them. So someone might share a picture saying that they're celebrating and then it will be the comments who will say of course happy 40th birthday and that comment then shows you actually the date of birth for that individual so it's these small pieces of information that can add up to tell us more about individuals online see the other thing that i was thinking of is how people will post things more personal details and all of a sudden that gets added into these large databases that are used for password brute force attacks. So now that their pets' names and those get added in and all the permutations associated with it are used for brute force attacks on passwords or cities that they've traveled to or favorite vacation spots or where they own properties. And now people can look there as well. Hackers can look there in order to piece together ways of getting assets and access to information that they shouldn't. Maybe their job site is super secure, but maybe their vacation home is super insecure and and if when they're going to be there, they might penetrate the network and get access to things that they normally wouldn't. Isn't that the case? It's piecing together unsuspecting parts of the puzzle. Absolutely. And that kind of information, as you say, can give away passwords. It can often be included in security questions and answers. Your favorite city or the street you grew up on or the name of your first pet. These things that we use to help authenticate us in, in getting access to accounts. And what I see very heavily is that kind of information being used in spear phishing attacks. So if someone is trying to compromise me and I have shared my favorite band, I've shared where I love to go for coffee, I've shared all this kind of information about myself, then actually creating a targeted phishing email um, to me that might say win free tickets or here's a voucher for your favorite coffee shop or whatever it may be, something that is a bit more juicy, is a bit more likely to work as a piece of bait. So when I'm explaining that to people, I'm not trying to say, don't ever say anything about yourself online because social media can have great benefits for us. But be aware that often when we share that information, it isn't just available to the friends and family that we might want it to be. It can be more widely available and people can and do use it in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect. 
I'm glad you brought home the point that we can't avoid sharing all personal details. That's unrealistic. I think what you're saying is that the other side of it is even more important, that in an age when we are sharing personal details and they're available to such a wider audience than we may imagine, it's incumbent upon us to be even more well-educated and vigilant about how we set up our security with our business or our other confidential assets. Absolutely. And it's that awareness for me is about people understanding how cyber criminals operate and the fact that they do this initial reconnaissance to understand organizations, to understand who works there, what those people, what systems and software they're using, which organizations they're partnering with, they're working with, and to put together this map of information that that they get from different sites, it can be pretty easy and used in in different ways to try to gain that, that first access to an organization. And if we help people to understand how cyber criminals operate and the fact that they do this, then we just raise that level. Jessica, are you ready for the mic quest for the best lightning round? I sure am. Excellent. At the beginning of the interview, we talked about who's someone who influenced or inspired you. And we talked about Dan, your brother. When you were a teenager, what's a song you loved? A song that really resonated with me as a teenager was Half the World Away by Oasis. I was a really big Oasis fan and it's a beautiful song, sung by Noel. And it's about wanting to escape your surroundings, wanting to escape your hometown. I loved my hometown. I didn't, it wasn't so much about escaping my hometown, but I wasn't very confident. And this song gave me a sense that I could be more, that nothing was forever and that things change and and move on. It's like when you leave your hometown, you can be people, your new person who you choose to be rather than be defined by the people who knew you growing up. Sure. And that, that you can evolve, that everything evolves. And that's a sense that I got from that song. Your mission is to help educate businesses and leaders in other nonprofit organizations to be more worried about cyber um, security and to help us benefit from that knowledge in practice. What do you do each and every week these days in order to get your word out about that mission? So I get my word out, I would say, mainly through social media, particularly Twitter. I find Twitter can be a really great way of communicating with people. And is there a tool or system you use to help you stay on track and productive with the different projects that you're managing and presentations that you're giving? Yeah, I use so many different tools, to be honest, and I would be lost without them. But for me, the thing that I come back to every day and always have is a paper planner, a book that helps me plan day by day, week by week. What are my absolute priorities? What do I need to to do every day? And what do I need to make sure I make time for, not just at a work level, but also at a home and a personal level as well? What would you say is the best £100 purchase you've made in the last six months? I think this would be, it certainly wasn't £100, but one of the best investments that I've made for my personal health is a water bottle that keeps the water chilled. And it sticks with me every day and night. I don't go anywhere without it. And it's made me realize that and before I had that, I basically didn't drink water. And I think I've spent much of my life dehydrated. So that's one of the best investments that I've made recently. Jessica, what is your definition of personal success? 
How do you know you're being successful? This actually harks back to something we spoke about earlier. The definition of personal success is when I can have a positive impact on somebody else, whether that is somebody as an individual, whether that is their personal and family life, whether that is as a small business owner or somebody in their job. When I can help somebody feel more confident with cybersecurity and go away and practice more secure behaviors, that's my definition of success and that's what drives me in what I do. In our lives today, we're always being urged to know more and do more and adopt new practices and learn new software. And one of the things that I really like to ask people to reflect on is if you think back over the last year, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's given you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? So something I have really cut down on, and I'm contradicting myself because I said one of the best places to get my message out I have found is social media, but something I have cut down on is my use of social media. So I try to use it much more consciously and I try to be on my phone less. I try to have specific time when I go into social media and I engage and I'm fully engaged. And when I'm not, I'm trying to avoid the doom scrolling. Basically, that I think has been very easy to do with everything that's been happening in the last year or so. I've stepped away from that and I found it's given me a bit more peace of mind, a bit more time to be present and to do other things like be in the garden, do some more crafting, do some more meditation, stuff that's probably a little bit more productive and and better for my mental health. I completely get that. I really do. It's not necessarily reading everything, but it's maybe posting things that are important. It's maybe sending rather than just reading everything to keep track. Yeah, exactly. And and not just reading something or scrolling through for the sake of it, where you may be not even aware of what you're looking at anymore. It's just flying by you on a screen. It's easy to fall into that trap. And I'm pleased that I've stepped away from that as a habit. So I want to step back and look at another issue that you mentioned in your book, Confident Cybersecurity. And I think it's very illustrative for people to think, not just in terms of the narrow assets of maybe credit card numbers or bank account information or things that might be embarrassing to people, but there are digital assets that are transferred these days that are really big business. And sometimes just gaining access to that is like knowing what the stock markets are going to be in half an hour. If we had a reading and could see what the stock markets are going to be in half an hour, we would all be wealthy, <laughs> Like just hypothetically speaking and taking ethics out of the picture for a moment. However, there are things we need to do to defend ourselves. And one of the very popular people you talk about in your book, Taylor Swift, with the lengths that she and her team go through in order to protect the music, in order to make sure that it's not available digitally before it's released, it makes all the difference. Can you give some context and details about that so that listeners can appreciate how other assets have value? Sure. So one thing that fascinates me about cybersecurity is that I think a lot of people don't realize how relevant it is to pretty much every job and every industry. So whether you are, whether you're working in finance, the law, whether it's you're an internet influencer or you're working in the music industry, fashion design, football or soccer, no matter what you do or what your business is, I can bet that information and assets will be really crucial to continuing with that business and growing and succeeding. 
And so protecting that information and those assets and making sure that you can still continue and function is a fundamental part of that. And that is what cybersecurity is. And so in in Confident Cybersecurity, I wanted to highlight those examples that have really stood out to me that show what what everybody has to do in whatever industry you're in to engage with cybersecurity. And so I talk about Taylor Swift and how her team ensure that when she is recording a music video and she has music dancers, that actually they don't play the actual track for the dancers to move to. They play a click track so that the dancers can move to the right beat, but that they aren't playing the music and exposing everybody, the music to everybody on that set so that somebody could potentially record it and leak it. Ed Sheeran also spoke about working um, with Taylor Swift on a collaboration, and he spoke about the process and the fact that he contributed his part of the, the music, and then it wasn't sent back to him over the internet for him to listen to and approve. He actually met up with a representative of Taylor Swift who turned up with a locked briefcase, with an iPad in the briefcase. They got the iPad out, they played the song once for him to approve, and then the iPad went back in the briefcase, got locked up again, and it was done. And I can bet that that iPad had probably never been on the internet and it was probably wiped straight afterwards because it seems that, I don't know if it's Tay-Tay herself or her team, have a strong awareness of the fact that cybersecurity is crucial to her as an artist. That's so important. And that point really, uh, the, the story really illustrates the importance of it and thinking about it so thoroughly. Jessica, you're also a member of, which is a group of volunteers that use their cybersecurity expertise to help raise awareness and help people be more protected about some of the issues and tactics and scams that are particularly going on related to COVID-19. Anytime there's a health issue, there's such an opportunity for scammers to try to benefit, exploit, and benefit from those situations. Can you fill in some gaps on what the the objectives are of the CV19 group and what are some of the observations and recommendations that people can take away to protect themselves, their loved ones, and their business? Absolutely. So CV19 was set up by three cybersecurity professionals who could see, obviously, the pandemic evolving, recognized that healthcare was going to be under target and was going to be under strain when it came to cybersecurity more than ever before. So they set up CV19 to provide free um, advice and support to healthcare organizations and asked if I would lead on the awareness project. So this essentially was about creating resources. So we created videos and digital flyers and we ran campaigns that were actually taken up by hundreds of hospitals globally to raise awareness of some of the key threats. So the first thing we focused on was around phishing and the fact that there has been a huge rise in phishing emails um, and phishing communications that unfortunately COVID-19 is a perfect storm for cyber criminals, that COVID-19 is the biggest theme we have ever seen globally around phishing. 
And so we wanted to raise awareness, particularly with individuals working in healthcare organizations, of the fact that that these phishing um, attacks, when they're successful, they are often playing on our emotions. So one message that I really try to communicate is if you receive a communication that you're not expecting and it's asking you to do something and it is making you feel emotional, that is a set of red flags that I really recommend you pay attention to, take a step back from and check with the supposed sender to see if they really did communicate it. Because that combination, unexpected, asking you to do something, making you feel something, that's a very potent combination that cyber criminals will use. Jessica, I just want to thank you so much for being on my quest for the best today and illuminating so many of these important issues. We started off and talked about Stephen and marketing. And all that we learned from that is how the emotional impact of feeling ashamed and being isolated plays into something that cyber hackers really are looking to exploit. We address the question of why would we be targeted and the importance of everyone realizing that if you're on the internet, if you're connected by your phone, by your computers, by your business systems, you have responsibilities to be proactive and responsible for how you're sharing and protecting your assets. We went through the example of Maersk, the world shipping company, and what they did in order to, because they were part of the collateral damage of a large phishing event, they lost significant assets. They lost $300 million due to being involved in this, and they weren't even directly targeted. And we could be involved in things without being directly targeted. It's certainly an important aspect of what we need to do and be aware of. Awareness is such a key because there's so much information that's outside our control, as we discussed with Sir John Sawyers, who he and his immediate family knew not to mention certain aspects of his job on Facebook, but others around him, others who he and his wife and family were connected with, weren't educated in that respect and therefore leaked information that created a security risk. Fortunately, the security services responded to it and became even more aware and proactive in being able to set that up. And we talked about many different examples examples, all about helping people become more aware, engaged, and responsible for their cybersecurity responsibilities. Dr. Jessica Barker, author of Confident Cybersecurity, how to get started in cybersecurity and future-proof your career. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And Jessica, before we say goodbye, where can we find out more about you and your work online? A great way to keep up with me is on sygenta.co.uk. In addition to your website, sygenta.co.uk, we're also going to link to all of your social media, as well as links to buy your book, both in the UK and the US. I want to thank you once again, Jessica Barker, author of Confident Cybersecurity, for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts 
on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.